I'm a doctor. But probably not the one you're expecting. Welcome to Pieces of Eight, the Doctor Who podcast that's half Gallifreyan on its father's side. Nobody ever looks at it that way. It's normally all about the Doctor's mother being human. How bizarre. Well, that's because we like to examine things in a slightly different way in this podcast. (laughs) This is the podcast that looks at a different aspect of the Doctor Who universe that features the incarnation of the Dime Lord, as played by Paul McGann. I'm Rebecca Chapman. And I'm Kenny Smith. And you join us as we continue our quest to feature the eighth Doctor's exploits, whether on screen, in books, novellas, full cast audios, short stories, comics, animations, talking books, or anything else we can lay our eyes, ears, and hands upon. And as we've reached episode 12 of the second series of Pieces of Eight, we're doing what Russell T. Davis would do. And no, I don't mean creating a new adult spin off, <laughs> I'm talking about a two part season finale. Indeed. And to mark the occasion, we're back with the TV movie. And previously, we've spoken with exec producer Philip Siegel and one of its stars, Yi Ji Cho. We've done our detective work. Dunna, dunna, dunna. (laughs) (laughs) We've tracked down Matthew Jacobs, who was not only the writer of the movie, but also a producer on it too. It's fantastic, just as we're about to hear Matthew's incredible connection with Doctor Who that goes back to his own childhood. And he's just such a lovely, enthusiastic, genuinely lovely fella. Yes, he really does seem it. He seems amazing. It seems just so, well, I suppose it was so long ago that we recorded this because we actually did this interview in the summer. And we always knew that we planned this would be our season finale, as we like to do season finales. And it was just, just such a pleasant sort of hour and a half that we spent chatting with them and not all of it did make it into the podcast but what we did to chat to, to go into the podcast was lovely and just genuinely good guy definitely it was he was so lovely and so friendly and down to earth yes and it's just really sort of pleasing to know that there's still people like that they might be working in hollywood and here's a guy who's worked on shows like young indiana jones chronicles and worked with quite a lot of talented people over the years, but very much down to earth, and still has his British accent. Of course, and hasn't done the thing where they go really, really posh. <laughs> Why <laughs> do sound, they do that? <laughs> yeah, so they'd sound like a villain in a, an American action movie against uh, somebody like um, Bruce Willis or, the, or Steven Seagal or that kind of yeah, person. it's terrible. Not that Matthew Jacobs was terrible, far from it. No, 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 definitely not. Matthew Jacobs was lovely. Yeah. And in last season's two-part finale, we invited listeners to share their memories of the TV movie, and we've done the same again this time. So, there was an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scotsman. No, 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 I'm sorry. I need to interrupt you. Do, Do you think this podcast is some kind of joke? No, not at all. I was just about to say, there was an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scotsman. And they were all Doctor Who fans. And they've shared their memories with us, which start here. Hello, everyone. I'm Ken Moss. I am a fellow podcaster from the Extra Moss Experiment, the Tonic Screwdriver, and Nine Bob Note. 
And I'm very flattered, Kenny and Becca, that you've asked me to give my recollections of the TV movie. I can't actually remember where I was when Paul McGann was cast, and at the time I wasn't really familiar with his work, but it was new Doctor Who, it was all shiny and big budget, and it was very exciting, so I hoovered up every little scrap in every magazine or Radio Times, and when it was announced that it was going to be released on VHS the week before transmission, of course I was there. I I didn't do the queuing up at midnight thing, but I did get the VHS first. Now, this came on the back of the Dunblane Massacre, I think. So we had a few minutes trimmed out over in the UK, which have since been put back in for subsequent DVD releases. And I think there were actually, I seem to remember a few VHS cases out there with the running time at 90 minutes. And then the one that I bought was at 85 minutes. I felt cheated, but we watched it in my mate's bedroom. A few of us got together and watched it uh, the week before transmission. I think we all sort of fairly loved it. One was a not-we. She was not a Doctor Who fan. She was there, bewildered by the whole thing. Me and my mate Paul, uh, we loved it, and it was very exciting. We thought that it was going to lead to a a full rebooted series. The viewing figures in England were very good, about 9 million, I think, which was good for the time. There's just everything stylistically about this movie. The plot doesn't really hang together that well. Uh, But if you read into the backstory of it and listen to the interviews, the writer and the director and the producers, they were all being pulled in about four different directions and trying to please everyone. So what we got out of it, actually, it's a minor miracle it actually made the screen at all. The one thing I will say is that the console room is awesome. It's easily my favourite console room from any era ever. We've had some great ones over the years. Uh, Again, Peter Capaldi's console room loved that. I love the secondary control room from Tom Baker's era. We all love the round things. But what I tend to term the mahogany cathedral, that's my console room, and I would happily die in that room. It looked great. It sounded great. Paul McGann was perfectly cast as the Doctor, and he's still my favourite Doctor after all these years. He replaced Peter Davison, and Peter Capaldi's had a go at trying to take the crown. Uh, But no, the Eighth Doctor is my Doctor. Hello, uh, my name is Johnny Candon. I am a writer and comedian. And the first, well, uh, there's two first times I saw the Paul Began film in that um, I remember going to HMV on Oxford Street in London to buy the um, to buy the video. And if you're young enough to not know what videos is, there was like cave paintings that moved when we were younger. But I brought that home. I, I, I think I went to the midnight opening. I'm fairly certain I did. Got home, watched it at about two in the morning. Absolutely loved it. But being a fan, probably watched it about three or four times before it was broadcast. I think it was the Maybank holiday. And then I was living, (laughs) this is when I was about 22, 21. And I was living in, let's call it a free flat, but it was a squat in London with my friend Barney and a couple of other people. And on the night it was broadcast, I was, even though I'd seen it maybe sort of four or five times in the previous few days, I made a point of booking the TV, getting snacks and stuff in, a couple of beers. And when it came on, I watched it with people who didn't particularly either know or like Doctor Who. They sort of kind of a bit poo-pooey of it in the few minutes leading up to it. But I watched it as if it was the first time I'd ever seen it on BBC One because I, I wanted to. I loved being part of the ratings and stuff. I thought if this gets if this gets big viewers, then it may well go to a series. And uh, so yeah, I watched it with a bunch of people who didn't particularly. It went fast. That's the problem. They just didn't. They they weren't bothered. And I thought, oh no, they're going to talk all the way through. 
within about five minutes, like, I, I'm not sure they were absolutely blown away by the opening narration because, um, you know, it's, it's a lot to take in for somebody who hasn't really watched Doctor Who. But by the time Sylvester McCoy had been shot and we were off to the hospital and things, they were pretty into it. And at the end, Barney was like, oh, that was all right, really. And thought, you know, if it was a series, he would watch it. And I definitely would have done. At the time, because there hadn't been Doctor Who for a few years, I was absolutely blown away. I thought it was the best thing I'd ever seen. I was just so happy to see Doctor Who with a budget, proper effects. And I say that, I say, looking back, Doctor Who in the 80s had, had proper effects. It's just that they weren't as good as can be done now. But I mean, you know, that wasn't their fault. But it did blow, my, it did blow me away. And I thought it was fantastic. I loved the TARDIS. I loved, I loved the TARDIS interior. I thought it was absolutely gorgeous. And Paul McGann, well, I just thought, the only thing, I, looking back, I think I would, I would have possibly loved to have seen the series. Of, we, if we could have our cake and eat it, I would have loved if maybe they'd done two or three series of Paul McGann. It had gone away again, and then we still got Doctor Who to come back in 2005. I don't know if that would have worked. Maybe if it had been cancelled, they never would have thought of bringing back the show. So it's swings and roundabouts. But I think we were robbed, really, of more TV McGann because for a long time because I thought he was great. I really did think he was, he was very doctorish. With Big Finish and stuff, I think we're getting better effects than we ever could have done because we're all in your head, you know? It's, it's just joyous to have him do them. And it's not, I think it's lovely when, um, you know, people don't have to. You could, they could say, you know, we, 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 would, we want to do audios and, you know, have you come back and play the doctor. And people could be like, well, I've done it. You know what I mean? But it's just brilliant that he's done so many and we've seen this evolution of his doctor. And I love him as much as I love any of them. I think he's a proper... And, you know, I got a big thrill when... Uh, in, I th I'm not sure which it was. It was either Family of Blood or uh, Human Nature, but you see the book where there's all these doodles and his face is in there and you think, yeah, because he is he's the Doctor. So it was a joyous experience and I've gone back to it. I still go back to that movie now and again, like on a sort of rainy Sunday afternoon, I'll pop it on and, yeah, it's, I mean, it's got its flaws. It's, it, it doesn't make a lick of sense at some points, but that's nothing to do with him. And... I think I've had, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to run it down because nobody should. It's it's great and it's um, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. That's what it is. And that's what Doctor Who should be. Hi, my name's John Bolan. Uh, I'm one of the co-hosts on the world famous podcast, The Power of Three. I'm one of the occasional three. And yeah, I've been asked to just give you some thoughts on my first viewing of the, of the TB movie back in, in 1996. Of course, like many people, I was uh, it was overshadowed by the news of the death of John Pertwee. Watching that on the news somewhat dampened the, the moment for me as a as a, someone whose whose doctor was John Pertwee. But still, uh, after all those years, it was wonderful and exciting to have the doctor return. I remember it was a beautiful sunny evening. I remember that much, and it was great just to sort of sit and see what this new adventure would be like. I tried to keep myself spoiler free, like many people. I did get a copy of the of the novelisation before the showing of the of the story itself, but I managed to uh, refrain from the temptation to to read it. I loved it, and I wanted it to be a success, and I was so pleased that it was. So pleased that you know when the viewing figures came out, it was an emphatic uh, hit. And then, of course, we all know what happened uh, on the other side of the pond. But yeah, it was it was um, it was really great. I enjoyed it.
it was only after a couple of years when you read all the revisions of what was wrong with it and you know what people you know how how it should have been done and so on you kind of think oh well yeah I suppose maybe there was something in that but simply as someone who had been starved of Doctor Who for all those years watching it back on television it was just a delight uh, and I thought Paul McGann was was great and uh, it's just a pity that we haven't had more opportunities to see him on screen but yeah it was it was great so our thanks to Ken, John and Johnny for sharing their recollections. So, get ready to find out about Matthew's memories of visiting the set of The Gunfighters, how his writing career came out, and how he came to work on Doctor Who stateside. And also, we'll find out which director of classic Doctor Who once admitted he wanted to kill Matthew. Slightly extreme, a bit of an over-the-top reaction, but let's find out who it is. So sit back, relax and enjoy. Oh, I'm Matthew Jacobs, and I I wrote the TV movie in '96 and co-produced. Fantastic. Yeah. Firstly, Matthew, welcome to Pieces of Eight. Thanks, Rebecca. <laughs> You've got quite an incredible connection with Doctor Who, as I heard that your link with the show began some 30 years before you even wrote the TV movie. Could you tell us a bit about that? It was when I was 10 years old, uh, 66, and my dad. Uh, was an actor, um, Anthony Jacobs, and he played Doc Holliday when in The Gunfighters. And as was his wont, when it was one of our birthdays or something like that, he would often take us to work with him. And because it was Doctor Who, it was like a real special treat. And so he took me along one, just, just for a day. But I got to meet Rex Tucker, I got to meet Hartnell, I got to meet all, you know, the, the sort of the, the main players as it were and it was and I, I, you know and it was enormous fun it sounds it do you have any souvenirs or did you get any photos taken while you were there well it was 1966 so we didn't have you know cell phones and things we weren't just instantly taking pictures of ourselves taking a picture was a big thing so no i don't really maybe if i maybe i do Maybe somewhere, maybe my brother's got something. He tends to keep things better than me, um, but but he might have something. I did meet, I met with the director Rex Tucker, and then the following year or two years later, I can't remember if it was a year or two years later, it was about 11 or something, he cast me in a, in a thing he was directing called Point Counterpoint, which was a BBC you know, drama, uh, BBC Two, a very early colour drama. And I, so I got my first experience. That's the thing I was left with, Rebecca. It was like, it was like a, as a result of going on that set that day, it was like Rex Tucker then called up my dad. He said, I remember your son. We'd like to sort of see him for a uh, point counterpoint. And I went in and got the, got the part on that. And that was like four or five episodes. And so suddenly I became a child actor. So that was the, um, the big thing that sort of, I suppose, came out of it. But uh, nothing. I've got lots of pictures of Dad doing it, obviously, and, and I had a lovely experience at Long Island. Who, you know, went to the convention there, and they put on a special panel about the gunfighters, and I was very nervous about going to it because I couldn't, really, you know, obviously I don't really remember anything, and I was worried there would be all these fans, you know, asking me questions about the gunfighters, and, and I wouldn't be able to answer any of them. But it was a very affectionate thing. We just watched, they showed the clips which had dad in it. 
and and it was wonderful. Fabulous. Had you been quite a bit of a Doctor Who fan before then? Yeah, that was like most kids, you know, I would watch it because it was only a few seasons in. Uh, it was only a few stories in, sorry, uh, at that point. It had only been going in since 63. And it was a very, you know, it was very early days. I, I was a fan, but I, but not, not like, I, I, I'm not, you know, not like a mad keen fan. Do you know what I mean? I was just a kid and everybody was watching it. So that was it. So you mentioned that that set you off as a, a child actor. So what led to you getting a career as a writer? Yes. Well, I, like I said, I was doing some child acting and I joined the National Youth Theatre and then, and then I soured on acting for a, a bit and I went off and got a job. I thought I was getting a job at the Royal School of Art, but it wasn't. It was RSA and it was early days of Ridley Scott Associates. And I thought I was getting a job as a messenger at an, an art college and I was actually getting a job as a, uh, as a runner for the editors uh, making commercials. So suddenly I sort of fell in love with what went on behind the, behind the camera, really. And that led to sort of doing lots of courses and I went to, you know, Hull and trained as a theatre director and then I went to National Film School and trained as a film director and an editor and a writer. I started to get work as a writer because other students would trust me to sort of, you know, get their ideas down and things like that. So when I left film school, I got quite a bit of work in the 80s and bit by bit, and then I was given stuff to direct as well. And then finally, what moved me over to America, really moved me over to America, was uh, working on Young Indiana Jones because um, Lucas uh, hired like half of the writing team for that show were meant to be British. Um, and the other half were American. There were only like six or six or eight of us in all, I think. So that meant that I had a chance to sort of go, go over to San Francisco. I got a deal with Sony. I stayed in America and just did lots of TV writing and film writing and did things like Empress New Groove and, and Lassie and and uh, you know, also all through the 90s, I was churning stuff out, which was quite major franchise stuff. And then as I went into the 2000s, I started doing weirder stuff. Now I just do very weird stuff. <laughs> it's kind of it. How did you first meet Philip Siegel and, you know, get involved with the movie? Well, what happened, I suppose, was the, they'd been trying to get a series off the ground, as you probably know, and it had kind of finally fallen and wasn't working. I wasn't involved at all, and, but it was, at, it was at Ambling. Spielberg was involved at, at that stage when they were trying to get it off the ground as a series. And that was with uh, Philip, you know, working great. I mean, Philip was the one who won, was, was responsible for the, um, uh, was responsible for the for the eighth doctor and i think in many ways it's philip who's responsible for keeping the doctor alive and you know we owe him a massive debt of gratitude for that and he is the archetypal uh, sort of he, even though he's british he really in some ways represents american fandom and so when we look at the bigger history of, of doctor who in many ways, the American fan is what's behind keeping the Doctor alive, because really they didn't want to... BBC were not keen to continue. The only person who was a big fan 
in many ways was Alan Yantar, and, and Alan was was very keen. So, um, but in answer to your question, my name obviously had come up somewhere because Trevor Walton, they decided to go to Fox to do a backdoor pilot. Um, and, uh, and Trevor Walton was the head of Fox TV movies at that time. And Trevor knew me, knew my work. Um, I mean, we'd actually been in the National Youth Theatre together. So we were actually quite old, old friends. I had no idea he was there. And I thought he was sort of like running the Tracy Ullman show and things like that. I thought that was what Trevor was doing. Um, but then, then suddenly I got a call from my agent saying that saying that they wanted to meet with me. And so I think Trevor was um, okay with me. And I think uh, and Universal were okay. Well, Spielberg was okay with me because they've done Young Indy. And so, so it was like I went in there, and the BBC were okay with me. I'd been. I'd done things like Hallelujah Anyhow and Ruth Rentals. I'd done all sorts of stuff for, for British TV. So everybody was kind of already a bit on the page, and that's how I got to meet him. And when I got went to meet him, it was fantastic. It was like going, I was on to the Universal lot in the Ambling building. I'd never been in that building before. And I went into Philip's office, and Philip's office was like a fan heaven. It was like everything was there. He already had everything was all sort of Doctor Who or stuff. And the first thing, you know, I can't remember how the pitch went, but basically my pitch was, well, it's Doctor Who am I? You know, we're going to have a new Doctor who will take over from, you know, from Sylvester, just like he should. And uh, and then he'll, he, the regeneration process will screw up and and he'll have to try and find out who he is and that'll introduce the american public to him and give you an adventure and then of course once he's found out who he is then he's able to save the world so that was the pitch was basically doctor who am i and and uh, and it was something that i think you know i think had been at the back of or in the front of philip's mind anyway but they'd gone down other roads you know they were reinventing the whole the wheel you know they were doing everything whereas what i came in with was really an extension of the previous show but then i wanted it to be in san francisco they seemed to like that i liked it because san francisco was at that time really was a sort of tech cutting edge place so and then he was very pleased. I think he was the one I really had to convince. And he gave me proudly, I've got it hanging somewhere. He, at the end of it, he gave me the key to the TARDIS. I thought, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing for fans. <laughs> and this weird key for the TARDIS. And I thought, ah, well, okay, I'll do the best I can with this. Um, and, um, but I felt very honored. Um, and and we started and we got we launched into it. But does that answer your question, Rebecca? It, it does definitely. Thank you so much. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, of tendency to go on. Oh, it's never a problem. No, you're fine. We love to hear people's thoughts, and you can never have too much when you want to hear about all these things because it's a film that I love. Because oh, it's thank uh, you. Because I I was one of the people who queued outside HMB in Princess Street in Edinburgh for the midnight opening on the 22nd of May, 1996. See, it's all ingrained in my head. Oh my I even gosh. tweeted a picture of it recently, oh, I'm, of oh, me with my car going. Well, we must connect on tweets. Yes. Because I, I want to see it. Um, yes. I will find great. you and tag I mean, you. Scotland was a big thing at that time when we were premiering it, because we, you just had this awful thing happen with the uh, 
a shooting that had taken place in Scotland. Yeah. And the result was, was that for us, it was that when Sylvester gets out of the TARDIS at the beginning, you know, he was meant to be stepping out into the middle of a gang war that was going on. And he was like with bullets flying everywhere. And I think Jeff shot it that way. And certainly the first few cuts I saw were that way. But because of what happened in Scotland, the BBC said, oh no, it's got to just be one shot. He comes out, stands there, bang, one shot hits him. We can't have a lot of guns going off. And they were right. I mean, I think that was the sensitive thing to do. But was there any feeling like that in Scotland? Did Scot I don't did think the, it. Do you remember any of that? I mean, I remember that the cuts were made because of the, the incident at Dunblane, which, and of course, uh, one of the survivors of that was the tennis player Andy Murray. But there was, yeah, there was a, a bit of feedback. But at the time, I think because we didn't know that it had been cut, we only found out afterwards. And because it was, there wasn't a lot made about it in the press at the time. Whereas these days, yeah, I think one of the Peter Capaldi episodes, there was an incident in the Middle East when there was a beheading for a, a Westerner who was taken by Islamic State, and they had to cut a scene where an android had its head removed, and that had to be taken out. So it's something that's pretty much it has happened since, sadly. Gosh. But there was not a people didn't it know at the time. It often happens. You're right. You're right. I mean, it often happens. You'll be writing or being in the middle of. I, I did a. Hi, I was writing pilot for the series of London's Burning, not the TV movie that was written prior. But they did commission me to write pilot, and I spent a lot of time on that. And my I focused the pilot on a fire that took place in the underground because the London Fire Brigades rules that extended to the underground at that time. And while we were, well, I would think I was on the second or third draft and the, the massive fire at King's Cross happened. You know, all those people were killed. And basically, it tanked the entire script. The entire script was about what happened. And so, so it was, so then everything, history, sometimes history overtakes whatever it is you're writing, even if you're writing science fiction. Um, uh, and, we, you know, we can look, it's very interesting when we look back at, at films and TV and we see historically where they sit and how we perceive them now. I think it's a fascinating thing to do. Absolutely. I mean, I suppose when you came onto the TV movie script, there'd been, as you mentioned, a few abortive attempts and so many of these were laden with continuity, but Gallifrey, Barusa, the Doctor's father, the Master, uh, the Doctor yeah. having a and, and just there were so many things, but I think by the time you came on, you must have been pleased that, no, let's just go with a clean slate and carry on with the TV series. They wouldn't let me read any of the previous attempts. They said, you can't read any of those, which I thank them for because, it, you know, so if there are any similarities, the Writers Guild decided at the end to, to, to give me self-credit simply because the only similarities that may have been the previous attempts were things that came from the series of old, the series that I was, that we were meant to be adapting. So I don't think the TV movie ended up lifting any original ideas. If they did, they, they were definitely fed to me by, by either, you know, Philip or, or other people because I never read any of the other uh, drafts. And I only really found out about them when, when, it, when it went to arbitration. 
for those of you who don't know, in arbitration in, in, in America, the, the Writers Guild has an automatic thing where if there are more than two or three people who have been hired on a project, then automatically writers are given the opportunity to take it to arbitration where they will say, no, I should have sole credit because it's all mine. You know, and then uh, they, you write a thing saying what, what you've done. Um, and then the poor bastards at the, at the Writers Guild, you know what I mean? Some poor writer somewhere has suddenly got eight scripts to read or 50 scripts to read, you know what I mean? Depending on how long the development process has been. And they read them all and then they have a chat and then they, they decide who gets what credit, um, which is kind of important because it implies all the residuals and everything and that's the reason they do it. But it's very organized. And so, yes, I think I think I think it was it was it was good that we, in the end of the day we tried to do clean stuff, still pay respect to most of the things that were docked. It's a very difficult line to draw, I think. I think you know the, at the end of the, I, it was actually Philip who said because I I've been making this um, small documentary called Doctor Who Am I, which was after I started getting invited back to all these conventions after the fiftieth and after Paul did his little thing. I didn't want to go really because it was like I'd moved, I'd moved on from the old things to Doctor Who. But a friend of mine who I make films with, um, Vanessa Yule, who's who who'd worked on the previous two films I'd just done, she's a documentarian. She said, "Oh no, we should we should go and we should film it because it's funny. You know, you don't want to be there. That everybody there will be characters." And I said, "I don't want this." So it was like Mr. Grumpy, um, but but we went on. I said I'll do it. We'll film it. Let's see what happens. And then over the over a year of going to these festivals, things like that, I suddenly sort of found a found a new family, and I did a sort of 180. I came around, realised that all these fans are there. They're not really there for the show so much. They're there for the sense of community that they build amongst each other. They're there for you know they're there to share stories in the same way. So at first you feel like, oh no, you know, I'm not sure this this is something I want to do. And then you go and you realize, oh no, this is a community. This is a family. This is, a, this is really nice. So I've since become a Doctor Who fan. How much was there in the original brief, such as, you know, having the Daleks at the start, Sylvester McCoy's Doctor and featuring the Master? So in the there was no original for me there was no real brief it was like it's like start start over the the eight time. we we had, when I came on board Paul McGann had done an audition for an earlier form of the Doctor so he was already on the slate of people that people what that they they were interested in I think they that Universal and, and Fox were concerned that again was the big enough name so we therefore had to have Eric Roberts do you know what I mean to who was a bigger name for the American TV to play the master to balance it out but there was no real brief they'd been they'd been exploring different approaches to I think they wanted some of the icons like, like uh, Dalek to be there but Daleks are a complex chain of title because especially at that time because they were created by uh, Nation. So in the early days of Doctor Who, I don't know whether it still applies, but in the early days of Doctor Who, it was a very low budget affair. And the BBC would basically pay for the license 
from the writer to use their script once or twice and then pay for repeats and that. But they weren't buying the underlying property. So if the writer came up with something original, the writers kind of retained that and it created a bit of confusion later down the line, I think, with, with them. But certainly not by the time I came on board. That was it. We did a deal. It was owned by whoever you did the deal. Yeah. How difficult was it having to craft a script that had to please so many masters in the terms of the BBC, Fox and Universal? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, it, and, and, and the question of how much of a brief there was, because the brief <laughs> was kind of slightly different from each of these elements, because you had Fox, you had Universal, you had Philip Siegel, you had the BBC. So you had these four elements and Fox uh, really was, was Trevor Walton. So he's a British guy and he, he kind of knew what it should feel like. Um, and, and, and in some ways was the, you know, was a really good supporter of, of whatever approach I wanted to take. You know, he, he, he actually was tremendously supportive and so was Philip. BBC was a little more of a problem because they'd really gone off that all things Doctor Who in some ways. So it was constantly, you know, well, couldn't it be more like this or couldn't it be more like that? It was a very confused message coming in from the BBC. But still, Joe Wright, who was the executive producer from the BBC, was wonderful. She was the person who really helped me in a massive way. She would be there, you know, when, when it came to this point when we were shooting, everything was happening so fast. Um, it really was. And so, so sometimes I wouldn't even know the size of the set that they were shooting on. You know what I mean? And I'd written like cloister room and I thought it would be like a cloister room. Cloister room is meant to be the smallest room in the church. So I didn't really imagine how they could, but then they said, oh no, 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 you have to take a look at, look at what we've done. And they sent me a model to where I was living at that time. They sent me this great model and I go, it's a cathedral. Okay. <laughs> so, so suddenly, you know, the question of how the fights and climaxes happened at the end was pretty much done. And I mean, I think Philip at some point has said he went away and wrote it. Well, he didn't. He did go away, and I think he did a pass. And then I and then I came in and I did another pass, and then everybody did a pass, you know, because they were they, we were all trying to make it work. But yes, the complexities of dealing with the different masters was difficult. Were, were, you know, was difficult because they weren't, it wasn't like they were spending nothing on it. They were spending like sort of five or six million on it. They'd spent two million building a series set that was, that was massive. And they were doing contracts with people, you know, with the view that they would, that this might go to series. And, you know, it would be all happening with the same sort of people who've done, you know, the uh, X-Files. And so it was, it was, uh, and it was a lot of X-Files people involved. So it was interesting. So yes, there were all sorts of different things. From my point of view, it, it was like, you, you have to balance these things. It's on the one side, there's, you want to get it made because that's what you're being paid for. You're being paid to write something that people can sign off on. So you'll write a big juicy speech for the master, play the master like a full on pantomime villain, which was the idea. And because, and as well, because Eric Roberts had trained him drama school in Britain, he was actually keen to play a sort of pantomime villain. So when people 
you know, make fun of, of Eric's master. I always think it's slightly unfair because that was the brief, you know, so he did, he did that. So I'd write a long speech for him and then the BBC would say, oh, no, 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 no. We don't want it that long. Uh, that's too much writing. <laughs> so, so, so I then rewrite it. So it became, uh -huh, uh, or something like that. And, and then, and then Eric would be furious because he'd learned all those lines. He said, "No, come on! I want to do it. Put back the old." So everybody was pulling in different. The only person who really was kind of above it all, in my opinion, was, were, or the people who were above it all, really were Daphne and Paul. Paul, I was talking to Paul and he was saying he didn't remember any of the rewrites at all. And then I remembered I didn't actually rewrite any of his stuff. That was always there, you know, very much there. His, his character and his dialogue was in play, pretty much in place from pretty early days on the script. What do you recall about the evolution of the script with things coming and going, such as like the Millennium Star? Yes, I think. You, you may probably know more about that than that. The evolution of the script. Well, it was a pretty standard kind of evolution for a script. It's like sometimes you sit down and you write something and you think, ah, oh, yeah, it's about, I want it to be about the process of regeneration. But therefore, the, the thing that I, we lost, which we're, through the evolution that I feel, I do feel a little sad about is, the richness of the supporting characters, especially Yiji's character. You know, Yiji had a lot more in the first drafts um, and was directly involved in it. You know, it wasn't just such a, he wasn't just like the Asian child. Um, he was, he, 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 had, he had a much richer character, I think, in the earlier drafts. And that ended up being sacrificed in order just to make some sort of space for sort of more fun games. Um, and uh, so it was the natural sort of evolution, but but in many ways I'm proud of what was left there. I I stand by the half human thing to, to you know I think he is, and, and then I stand by the you know stand absolutely stand by the romance. I'm glad that the romance has been picked up because even though the sort of fond memory of the Doctor is is that he's your He's your creepy uncle or your creepy grandfather or something. You know, even if that's how I, I and I, I actually worked with Warris the same um, on a on a thing like that. He and he just blithely sort of said to me, he didn't realise what I'd done at all. And he said, Oh yeah, Doctor. He said, Whatever they did, that TV movie destroyed the Doctor. You know, he's whoever wrote that ought to be killed. Hi. <laughs> and, uh, because he perceives the doctor and i think a lot of people did as the the grandfather the the uh, the older person in the room and i think the main thing we were doing in terms of the evolution of the script was trying to find the right tone for him for what was the 90s you know we were trying to find a a slightly different tone for him. So that he wasn't the wacky uncle. He was more of a romantic, Byronesque hero. And that came very much as well from Phil. Phil wanted that. Phil was devastated when Paul turned up with his hair cut. And so they had to rush around and get that silly wig that he wears. So you mentioned that you had a rough idea that it might be Paul 
when you were doing it. So how did you find writing for a Doctor and getting, you know, establishing a character for him? And he is very much in keeping with the 21st century Doctors, saying that I'm the guy with two hearts rather than the man with two hearts, which would have been very classic yeah. series. Yes. So how did I get into, the question is really, how did I get into writing, a, you know, into the Doctor's head in my mind? I think it, I think I was lucky because I'd had been brought up on the Doctor. So as a child, you go around thinking, imagining yourself as your hero that you see on TV. And as a 10-year-old, you'll spend forever playing Star Trek and pretending to be Captain Kirk or, or Spock or whatever. Likewise, people did that a bit with Doctor Who, but not so much. Um, they were more interested in the villains. So this was this great opportunity. There I was in my I don't know, what was I, 30s, something like that. And I've been given this opportunity to be the doctor. That's how I felt. That's how you feel as a writer. You feel as though you have to kind of become the characters a little bit. And so you end up looking for what's in you that you can bring to the table. And what was the what what does the character need to be? How does the character what are the things that you've always loved the most about the doctor? And I think every writer does this to to a degree, no matter what they're writing, but they especially do it with the Doctor because the Doctor's this iconic character who means different things to different people. Everybody has their favourite Doctor, do you know what I mean? So suddenly being able to sort of be the Doctor as you're anybody who writes Doctor Who fan fiction or, or writes novels or writes stuff around the Doctor, they'll know that feeling. Of like, oh, it's great. he's a great canvas to paint on because he's a little bit blank. There are definite things that you don't know about the Doctor, and it should remain that way. But if we knew everything about the Doctor, he wouldn't be Doctor Who. He would be Doctor James or something. <laughs> yeah, I think it is really fascinating just hearing how it all sort of came together, and obviously we'll find out a bit more about the the writing process and how things went afterwards, and how Matthew looks back on the TV movie in next week's season finale. Indeed we will, 25 years after it was released. That's can you imagine? Good. Well, I can because I was young and had hair and was quite a cheeky young chap and was, well, then again, I suppose I'm still quite a cheeky chap these days, but not so young. I was a hobby. Yes, we know. <laughs> and a very <laughs> cute one with big brown eyes as well, so. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> fantastic. Oh no, I can't say fantastic. That's the, the word for two incarnations down the line. <laughs> yeah, we're late. You're late or early. We're doing something. Definitely. Early, 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 early. As this is the doctor who says things three or four times. Fantastic, 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 fantastic. No, that makes me sound like John Barrowman now. No. Um... <laughs> so anyway, we hope you've enjoyed this week's episode and we will be back next time with the final part and we shall reveal what's coming after the end of season da. two da, 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 da. Yeah. i've been kenny smith and i've been rebecca chapman bye, bye.